Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm supposed to take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we gain no value to haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Okay, so today's podcast is a special one. Obviously, if you've tu- if you've turned on the TV or you watched clips on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you have seen these faces of these two gentlemen who uh, uh, are going through an interesting phase right now as they're coming out as FBI whistleblowers against a lot of different things that's going on. And so let me properly introduce them, and then we'll go into uh, uh, them sharing their experiences, and we'll go into a bunch of different topics. First, we have Steve Friend who is uh, not the actor from A Few Good Men. Steve Friend is, is an FBI agent since 2014 uh, and recent whistleblower. He grew up in Savannah, Georgia. He graduated from University of Notre Dame with a bachelor's in accounting. He transitioned from business to a career in law, for- law enforcement in 2009. He was sworn uh, a sworn police officer in Savannah and Pooler, Georgia, for four years before joining the FBI in 2014. He spent seven years in the FBI investigating violent crime and major offenses occurring on Indian reservations in northeast Nebraska. Friend was also a member of the FBI Omaha SWAT team for five years. He transferred to Daytona Beach in 2021 to investigate child exploitation, human trafficking, and child sexual abuse material. Friend was reassigned to domestic terrorism casework in October 2021, and he was indefinitely suspended as an FBI special agent following his whistleblower disclosures in September 2022, and we'll get into that. And then we have Garrett Boyle uh, with one of the best hairdos out there. Got to give him credit for that hair. O'Boyle, oh, I believe. O'Boyle. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. O'Boyle Garrett O'Boyle. Rules. Yes. Garrett O'Boyle. Uh, he is a Christian, a husband, a father, indefinitely suspended FBI agent, former police officer, infantry veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, truth seeker. He, he's a Special agent was given a new assignment in September of 2022 in Virginia. He was stationed in Wichita, Kansas at the time. So he and his wife sold their home in August, lived in Airbnb for a few weeks. During the time the baby was born, then in an RV for six weeks, before finding rental property in which to live, Garrett then reported to his new assignment in Virginia on September 26, 2022. The FBI waited until the time to suspend him. He was escorted out and suspended without pay. They intended to close on a home shortly after, which, of course, fell through as well because Garrett is still an employee of the FBI, and they have prohibited him from earning wages that are more than $7,500 per year. I mean, even Bernie Sanders will be pissed off at that, <laughs> yeah. right? That's like, Jeez. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. They did not allow him to get everything they owned out of storage in Virginia for six weeks. Garrett's family... Now with four young daughters, we're living out of suitcases for those six weeks without proper clothing uh, for the weather or even toys for their children. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being a guest here on PBD Podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having me. us. So first of all, uh, if you don't mind taking a moment uh, and, and kind of walking through the process of you're kind of sitting here like, do we really want to go through this or not? Do we really want to do this? I feel like the phase you're going through is when you want to become a whistleblower and there's talks that these guys may be coming on and they may be sharing th- stuff, they first have to uh, uh, defund you in a way where you don't have any money. Let's get these guys to be broke. Number two, they have to discredit you. They don't know what they're talking about. You're not true whistleblowers. Then phase three is demonize you. I don't know if demonizing phase is even here yet. I don't know what's to come next to you guys. It's going to be very ugly with you guys. 
And then at the end, if you're right and your testimony, your arguments, and people fighting on your side, then there's vindication, right? I think you're right now in the discredited, demonizing phase that you are. But what was the process you guys went through in saying, look, do we want to do this or not? And I know there's a George Hill, there's a Gary Shapley, and there's a few other uh, uh, folks there as well. But maybe walk us through what made you guys say, you know what? I'm doing this. I'm not holding back anymore. Go ahead, Garrett. For me, it... uh it got to a point where there had been numerous things in the FBI that I saw over the, just the short time I'd been in it. And it boiled down to a conversation I ended up having with my wife in, I think it was, it was roughly October of 2021. And I said, you know, this agency truly isn't, uh, they truly don't care about doing the right thing. I know that is the main talking point of the FBI. And they drill into your head fidelity, bravery, and integrity from day one, and we see it on TV shows and, and everything. We're all led to believe that this institution is beyond reproach, and it's not. It, it, it's as simple as that. It's not above reproach. Uh, they are sinful human beings just like me, just like every other, um, but then there is malice or hubris or uh, a goal to strive to promote, and those things aren't often aligned with the Constitution, with the oath we took. It's not aligned with how law enforcement is supposed to properly function in this nation. And when you start seeing those things, uh, it at first for me it was like, maybe that's just a personality quirk of that person or that supervisor. But then over time, it's, it, it, it's repetitive. Maybe different instances, different things that occur, but it, it, it starts to build. And then there's a mountain of evidence where there's a lot of wrongdoing going on. And so I had this conversation with my wife and I said, you know, I don't think uh, they want someone like me. Uh, they don't want someone who's willing to point out the the errors of the agency because I had initially, this is one of the smears that, that they tried at the hearing um, where they said, oh, well, you never went to your chain of command. Uh, that's, or, or actually that was in my deposition, but uh, that's false. Uh, it started with them and I made numerous complaints to them, even bringing up Supreme Court case law, bringing up federal statutes, even just simple morality. And it was always like, hey, yeah, maybe that's a good point, but um, not, not, nothing ever happened. And so um, I talked to my wife and I said, I, I think I'm going to go to Congress with some of my concerns. And uh, I did in, in November of 2021 is when I first did that. And then uh, every time after that, whenever another instance of malfeasance or uh, areas that I had a reasonable belief of wrongdoing was occurring, I uh, would recontact Congress and say, hey, this is a, here's another example. Here's another example of what's going wrong in the FBI. And I think Congressman Jordan um, nailed it on, on the head at the hearing when he said something to the effect of, they became aware of my whistleblowing activity in regards to the school board threat tag. And they said, we got him right where we want him. He's in the middle of this transfer. If we can get this guy, then nobody else is coming forward. Wow. And I, I truly think that that is what happened. Of course, I don't know for sure. I'll probably never know because the FBI won't release any of the information about why I, uh, regarding their investigation into me. So they're making an example out of you. Is that what you're saying? I believe that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I have a follow up, but I want to hear yours as well. And then I, I got a couple questions for you. Go for it. Well, I never really had the the thought of I'm going to become a whistleblower. I, I've always just prided myself on being a, a professional and, and going about my job the right way. And, and my motto is paint the fence. And I kind of view the mission of the FBI as a giant fence. 
And if everybody paints a section of the fence that's in their yard, this whole fence is going to get painted. So I'm going to focus on what's in front of me, control the controllables. And the FBI gives you specific training on you go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, you go to the MLK Memorial. And, and the point of that is it's, it's drilled into your head that these type of atrocities and civil rights violations only happen when law enforcement is out of control. It becomes a weaponized apparatchik of a politicized mm-hmm. arm of, an, of the government. Or when good people do nothing. Correct. Correct. And uh, I, I had concerns once uh, I was ruled from child pornography investigations into domestic terrorism because that initial phone call, I overheard my manager talking to the higher ups and they said child pornography was not going to be resourced anymore. And I know that that's a significant violation, but again, paint the fence. I'm a team guy. I'm going to roll into that. And it was very apparent early on once that happened that there was just not a lot of work to do. Uh, and eventually when, uh, when things came to a head and we were going to be making these arrests on, on subjects, I had two concerns. One was the FBI was departing from the rules. And as a professional, when I go to trial, I want to make sure my case is buttoned up. I, I, I was taking it on good faith that those were righteous prosecutions. I hadn't had a chance to work them. They'd been sort of worked before my time. And I didn't want to be in a position on the stand where I was unprepared. And I don't care about the other cases, though. They've been successful, so you should be successful, too. I'm painting the fence. I want to make sure I'm buttoned up. There's some exculpatory evidence. We need to hand it over to defense because that's the right way. And secondarily, we were going to be using a SWAT team or large-scale arrest operations with lots of dozens of agents and it was for people who were either accused of misdemeanor crimes or even if they were accused of felonies that they had pledged to be cooperative with law enforcement. And I just put myself in the position of it's easy to Monday morning quarterback Waco or Ruby Ridge and say, well, I would have, I would have said, Hey guys, this is a mistake. I felt like I was that guy in that situation. And I I said, look, this is going to happen. And we have been lucky so far that nothing has transpire where there's a risk to our personal safety or to the subject's personal safety, we can just call this guy on the phone and brought that to my supervisors and uh, immediately became apparent that I was in over my head because the response that I got from three levels of management was, you have a really great reputation and a great career ahead of you. Are you sure you want to do this? Wow. So, so you know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I remember being in the army and I'm looking at everybody at the unit I was at to see where politically they're at. And you're kind of like, okay, cool. And I wasn't a guy that followed politics, but I'm like, okay, that's where they're at. I don't even say anything. I'm just going to do my job. I'm good to go. I'm at the hunter first as well. And Hey, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm good to go. All right. Then you get out of the army and you're working at a environment where in the company I was a part of, uh, uh, nearly 50% of the guys I work with were LDS. So there were Mormons, and I'm learning about, hey, you know, Gordon B. Hinckley, and, and these are the virtues, and this is this, and, you know, here's what's going on in Utah, and, and I'm, okay, cool, I respect, this is what these guys are doing, no problem. I go to Harvard <clears throat> for a, a business program, and it was at the same time when Hillary Clinton and, Clinton and Trump had their first debate, and the, the one where you'd be in jail, I don't know, whichever oh. one's, it's it, it, either the first or second, I don't know which one it was, because you'd be in jail, right? Oh, the best. We're watching this. At the chow hall, 
Chow Hall is not the military Chow Hall, because that's what I thought it was spelled. <laughs> Chow Hall is a man's name called Chow and Hall. So I was so confused. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Mr. It's, Chow. Oh, if you literally go Harvard yeah, Chow Hall, yeah. you'll see it's a guy that's a very... Can you can you Google Harvard Chow Hall, please? so funny. It's a very wealthy man in Harvard. The building is called the Chow Hall. So that's all the so military funny. guys were like... You got me. ...waiting for some, some you know ghetto food with whatever. But no, it's actually fa- fantastic. Wow, so funny. So we're watching the debate, and I'm sitting quietly on the sideline. This is eight years ago. And I'm watching, I'm like, every, when I tell you 99% of the people were rooting for Hillary at Harvard, which is a institution of thinking and, you know, it's advancement and you got critical thinking. Nope, 99%. And every time Trump got her, boo, boo, boo. And I'm like, wow, yeah, this, is, this is pretty ridiculous. I like a good debate. You guys are all on one side. This is not a university. This is a shit show here, right? Yeah. So, But eventually, you do one of two things when you're in an environment like that. You either sit there and you say, well, I better not say anything because I know where these guys stand. Or you sit there and you risk saying something. And if you do, you're going to create a lot of enemies. Did you both have a moment like that where you're sitting there saying, well... I kind of know every one of these guys are, they hate Trump. Every one of these guys can't stand Republicans. Every one of these guys, I better not say anything and try to be as level-headed as possible in my argument. Or you're like, no, everybody knew where we stood, and I still uh, gave my argument. What was it like? Uh, for me, where I was in Wichita, I'd say most of the people there um, we were, were reasonably-minded people. Um, but it boiled down to... Uh, so there's a passage in the Bible in Ephesians uh, where it talks about the armor of God, and a, a key theme of that is standing firm. And that means standing firm in your faith against the schemes of the devil and standing firm for the truth. And you, you mentioned it. It's not easy. It has not been easy. I can only imagine. And it, 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 I'm sure it will get hard again. I'm sure... Um, the spiritual forces at work are mounting an attack, and I'm certain the FBI is mounting some type of attack on me and Steve and others for speaking out because, the, like you said about Harvard, the institutional rot, it is, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, it has been infiltrated everywhere. And so I wouldn't say it was like a watershed moment of like, not, this is the hill. You know, I think, I think that the hill is picked for us, and we just have to obey the supreme commander uh, Christ, and if we don't do that, then then we will have to account for that at the end. And uh, so it was more for me. It was more that aspect. And then locally in Wichita, it was I would bet most of the people there agree with me about most of these things. Uh, for instance, the school board threat tag. My boss himself, when that threat tag came out, came to my squad because I worked JTTF. So. And it, it was a criminal and a CTD, criminal terrorism division, yep. uh, threat tag. He straight up said to us, we will not be going to school board meetings on this squad. Now, we never got tasked with actually having to do that. So my question is, if, if the pressure came from above, because in the FBI, that's my stance, is that HQ level, senior staff, executive staff level, that is where the institutional rot is is the worst. And the, and the headquarters level, that's where it's the worst. So if that pressure came down from above, um, would he have stood firm on that um, belief uh, that we wouldn't go to those school board meetings? I don't know, um, because I'm pretty sure Steve was one of the agents who was ordered to go to one of those school board meetings. Yep. Yeah, we actually surveilled uh, a subject, a January 6th subject. We were told that he was going to be going to a school board meeting 
uh, that was going to be expected to be kind of rowdy. There was some pornographic material that was discovered in the school library, so a lot of parents were going to it. And it was sort of clear to me at that point that there was there was an attempt to marry January 6th domestic terrorism to school boards. Uh, we wound up going to the parking lot and watching this guy, and, and, and we were attempting to document anybody who he was meeting with, get their license plates. And, and that's just another downstream uh, collateral damage effect of this growing domestic intelligence agency that the FBI has sort of evolved into. Uh, but to the original question for me, just sitting in the room with these people, um, I felt like I had conviction about what I believed. And no man can serve two masters. They were attempting to please their higher-ups because their ambition and their passion for the FBI is to promote. That's, that's really what it is. Once you get into those management, not leadership, management ranks within the FBI. Promote from within. Pr- promote. And it's a very systematic process where it's every 18 months. You need to be filling out your resume and doing it in a certain way, pleasing the right people to go to the next role. So they're never actually doing the job they want to do. Their job, in their mind, is get to the next job. So they just didn't have the conviction that I had where I, I say, this is not an easy decision, but it's simple. And when I was bringing my concerns to them, they were some of them were genuinely perplexed that I would put this out there to them when I could just simply do what I was told. And there, there were some true believers. My, my special agent in charge, she certainly used some choice words with me. She called me a conspiracy theorist, and she said that I represented a fringe belief and that uh, I couldn't possibly understand anything that happened on January 6th because I wasn't there, but she was there on the seventh floor, which is FBI internal code speak. If you say the seventh floor, that means the, the FBI director. It means you're an important person by proxy. So she says, I was on the seventh floor that day that those people tried to seize our democracy. And that phrase, that language choice to me says that she's really a true believer. And that was in keeping with things that she had done. We're, we're now in the, uh, the blessed month of, of June here. And uh, she put up a gay pride flag display in our in our office in Jacksonville. And after the, the Dobbs decision was uh, rendered, she put an email out talking about women's rights potentially being lost. So definitely uh, was not hiding her, her left politics. Um, <clears throat> uh, first of all, uh, I want to thank both you guys for your service, both law enforcement and military. Me and Pat are both veterans. And I, I saw the entire hearing last night. We flew in from uh, Texas, and it was not only embarrassing, it was disgusting just to see how, from everything that you guys have done, it takes one second. I think it was you, Gary. You said that you swore, you didn't swear an oath to the FBI. You guys swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States, which states all enemies, foreign and domestic. This is the domestic. That's them. That's the domestic. So I want to ask you guys a question. In regards to January 6th, I, uh, I think I read something that they didn't want to lump everybody in just as one case. They did it individually. So these people, when they went home, they could go after them in all these states to make it seem like white supremacy and this terrorism was widespread. Is that one of the directives that they told you guys that? That, that's my whistleblower complaint. That's it right there. Yeah. So yeah. They said, you let them go home, and then we'll get them individually so we can make this whole January 6th. It's not just, it wasn't just as one event. It was across the nation. Yeah, it's the, the way that the FBI rulebook says is if the offense occurs in a location, you're supposed to open it in that location and investigate it. You can do what they did, which was they opened a separate case for every single person, assigned them to the areas where they lived for logistical purposes. 
However, once that decision is made, and it's very dubious that they made that decision, yeah. it's it's very clear that they're juking the stats. Of course. But it's still allowable. Where they then departed from the rules, and it's definitely a departure, is they stood up a task force in Washington, D.C., which was giving directives to the agents in the field who, on paper, were supposed to be in charge of those cases. So there was a situation, and I expressed this to my bosses. I could go on the stand, and a defense attorney will say, Agent Friend, did you do anything in your case? Did you make any decisions? And I would have to honestly say, no, I didn't. And then that puts the federal prosecutor in a position where he has to impeach me. And we could be in trouble. And we we could have a guy who was doing something legitimately wrong walk on that. It has nothing to do with January 6th. It has something to do with the process. And then this just represented the largest, most egregious example of what the FBI does with statistics pertaining to domestic terrorism and, and all across the board. I mean, it's all a numbers game. Uh, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this. This is something that's been around for 10 years. It's called integrated program management. This is a metric system. Think of it as the traffic cops got to write his ticket quota. The FBI uh, implemented it about a a decade ago. No surprise, domestic terrorism numbers have quadrupled in 10 years. And it is not only tied to funding requests from, from Congress for the agency, it is tied to executive compensation. Senior executive service members get somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 because their subordinates are able to open up a certain number of cases, use certain tools. So Garrett can speak to this. You're pressured to open up a wiretap, the most invasive investigative tool, legitimate tool, but you're pressured to because we have to have at least – one wiretap this year so boss wow. can get his bonus do, do, does fisa warrants fall under that too they do fisa warrants yep. under that so like if you do if you put a warrant on somebody they're like you get a bonus like is that insane yeah. so uh, a title three wiretap and a fisa uh are what the fbi considers sophisticated techniques it's part of this ipm structure that steve was talking about and it's it's part of the metrics that they have to meet every field office has to meet and it's it's basically a checkmark system. Red, bad. You didn't meet the standard. Green, you met what you set out to do. Gold, you exceeded. Wow. So say for any given year, the Kansas City field office says, hey, we need to get three wiretaps or of, of either sort, FISA or Title III. So of course that pressure is going to then trickle down onto the people doing the actual work because the boss wants to get that that gold checkmark so you get that bonus. Wow. Uh, and And it's especially in law enforcement, in the alleged land of the free. You have a system in place where you're giving a monetary bonus for law enforcement work. That is not how the scales of justice are supposed to tip. Because in law enforcement, you seek the facts. You find as, the, the, as many facts as you can because that is going to get you as close to the truth as possible. With any given case, you may not ever know the entire full truth, but you can get close enough. And well, that's why we have a court system and, and a different standards of, um, you know, you have reasonable suspicion and probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt and all these things, uh, because you may never get 100% of the truth. But when you have the highest ranking member in any field office, really in, in the forefront of their mind thinking, man, I know I have a really nice SES salary, but I can get that bonus bumped up even more if, I, if we can get a lot of these sophisticated techniques or numbers of arrests or whatever. And it's like, that's that's not how law enforcement is supposed to work. That's how sales works. Right. Like a sales team is who, like... Who determines that comp plan? Who, who created that comp plan 10 years ago? The, fe- the federal government. Oh, the, the IPM structure? I'm not yeah. sure. But there is a federal statute across all federal government for all SES employees. But who created that con- that incentive? Who, who led it? 
It's FBI. It's all. It's all across the FBI. It's all, all across the board. All across every yeah. every federal government institution. It was. So a, it had to be the government. Pack. It was an outside consulting. I don't know if it was McKinsey or somebody like that that they brought in. I, I, I believe it was actually multiple consulting companies. Kind of came up on this system, and it's it's not even just opening up in a certain number of cases in using a certain number of tools. And then you start playing the sales game of, I, I've had situations where I was told, hey, we already hit our numbers for this year. We don't want to exceed them too much because then we're going to have to hit higher numbers next year. Can you delay indicting that case for a couple months wow. till the new fiscal year? And by the way, I can see that happening because in sales, it's called sandbagging. So what, what that means is, say you have end of the month, you, you already beat everybody, but you got 28 deals you can wait and hang on to for five days to report on the first of the next month to start off strong, wow. and you've already hit your bonuses for the month, so you sandbag. But that's in business and sales. If there's anywhere there shouldn't be sandbagging, is the FBI. Well, you're putting the public at risk of fraud and force, and, and I think it would be interesting, and I've never done this, but now that you've mentioned that, um, maybe do a statistical analysis of how many cases get brought in the first week of October. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a good point. Because that's Q, Q4 is what you're saying. That's, that's, you, that's fiscal year rolls over. September 30th to October 1 is the new fiscal year. Yeah. So it. I wonder how many search warrants get loaded up on October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd just because those squads are saying we're holding this back and then at the first possible moment, because and they're, at their core, they're still cops. They want to go get the bad guy. Uh, and then they just unleash at that point. That's actually a great point. I, I doubt the FBI would ever release that information, but I'm sure Steve can attest to that. Well, anybody who work, who's worked in government, at the end of the fiscal year, what happens? Hey, we got this much money left. We got to spend it. Spend it, spend it, spend yeah. it, or we're not going to get it next yeah. year. There, there's a few things I would want to know, and Adam, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to come to you, because I mm -hmm. think you want to say something. There's a few things I want to know. Uh, uh, you know the data that shows for every conservative professor, there's 11 to 13 liberals in college universities. Great. It's good for us to know that. And then the stat that says for every, you know, uh, out of 100 uh, teachers, K through 12 in public schools, 97 of them in English, English teachers, 97 out of 100 teachers gave to Democratic Party, three gave to Republican. And then you go to health teachers, K through 12, it's 98 to 2. And then if you do math and science, it's 87 to 13, right? Where we know at least math and science, 87 are Democrats, 13 are Republicans, conservatives, great. What percentage of FBI as a whole would you say are Democrats or Republicans or independents? That, that's a tough one to put as a whole because there's some great divisions within the FBI. So there's about 40,000 employees in the FBI. Only 14,000 are, are special agents. So the majority of the population is support staff. Um, it's different culturally for support staff. I think they tend to lean, and especially in the intelligence analysis field, they tend to lean left. Those are the people that are writing, essentially their, their profession is writing college term papers. And they're very overeducated college mindset. So that, that and you've seen like that Richmond field office, a radical traditional Catholic memo came out from an intelligence analyst, definitely only using left-wing sources on that. Um, as far as the administrative staff goes, uh, I never really dug into politics with too many of them. I think from the, the agent population then, you also have to split between the rank and file, boots on the ground guys that just want to be cops. And, and they tend to be moderate to conservative. Uh, and I think that that's, it's gun culture. I mean, you're, obviously the Second Amendment comes in and that's going to be a good guide, a plumb line for politics. And if you're comfortable carrying a gun, you probably support the Second Amendment, you're probably conservative. But the management structure 
is left-leaning, and I, I, I attribute that to the, the way that that process works. It's a very self-selecting, because in order to become a manager in the FBI, you have to be one, be willing to go back and forth to Washington, D.C. all the time. No. Family roots aren't there. Secondly, you have to initiate something that is new and novel, uh, do something with a splash to put on your resume. And the nature of a conservative person is, what do I, what's the waste, fraud, and abuse that I can cut and just do the job? Sure. The person who's left-leaning is not opposed to a new initiative. And that's where, you know, I made the comparison to the, uh, the, the movie Jurassic World where Vincent D'Onofrio's character wants to use the velociraptors to go after terrorists. And, <laughs> and it's, it's funny, but it's, it's yeah, true, true because it, it briefs well. You put it on a PowerPoint. We don't need a drone strike. We've done that. And I, I can't promote off a drone strike or send in a SEAL team. Um, I'll use velociraptors. And that's how somebody would promote within the military and within the FBI. Is, is it a similar structure like when you're in the... By the way, if you're watching this and you're enjoying and, and you want more, you want to hear more from what these gentlemen have to say in a long-form podcast where they can talk freely. It's about them today. It's not about us. Uh, if you give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and share it so other people can see it as well. We've grown quickly to uh, 10,000 people live watching it right now. I think more and more people need to hear what these gentlemen have to say. In, a mil in the military... You know how uh, uh, HHC or headquarters would look at field, they would look at grunts like you're, you're dumb, you just carry a gun, and I'm an officer, my, my, my boots are always shining clean, look how dirty your boots are, you know, I'm always, I got my stuff from, you know, quartermasters, I got my crease, everything, you look like, you know, dirt, you don't look good, you don't do this, there was a certain like, I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you. And then when you would say, yes, sir, to enlisted, they're like, hey, don't tell, don't tell me that. I work for a living. Is, is it that kind of a mindset where the guys at that level think, you guys are just, just listen, go do the work, but you, we're going to tell you what to do. Is it kind of like that kind of a culture? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, because I can, I can speak to the Army side of things, too. Very similar experience. I had a couple really good officers, um, but by and large, that type of hubris, it's, it has infected the FBI at the senior management levels. Yeah, that's a problem when that happens because when it's a top-down and, and the guys are doing the work. And, and by, by the way, you both worked under Comey and you worked under Ray, right? I was just under Ray. You were just under Ray. Okay, so you got involved what year? When when 2018 I got hired. 2018. So he's 2017 August I think is when he came in. And right before that was Comey for whatever four years he was in. How different was it? Was there was there a immediate feel of a different in culture under Comey or Ray? Or no, you didn't feel nothing. It was the same thing. Well, I, I didn't really feel it. I was in a okay. small office, Got it. Um, but I, I do think that there was a cultural change that happened. And we were talking about this actually earlier um, after September 11th, when Bob Mueller became the FBI director and the transition to the intelligence agency that you now see to its full fruition began. And the people that came in uh, under Mueller in the early days, they're now in a position of leadership in the FBI. So they came in. It's a very Patriot Act, neocon mindset. Uh, that maybe inspired them to join. Mm. Then Comey comes in and he brought in the "I'm ethical beyond all reproach" and and unethical. I, I am ethical. ethical. Got it. And I, I I think the story is that the his lieutenants and the, and the folks that are, were around him and are now ascending these very high levels they were called the College of Cardinals because they are true believers in their utmost morality. You cannot question. They've never sat, looked in the mirror, and said, "Am I the bad guy?" And now they are the executive assistant director. What an arrogant yes. way of doing it. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's disgusting. Yeah. I've been around people like that. It, it, I've never met anybody that's, you know, 
There's people like that in church. There's people like that in schools. There's people like that everywhere, and they're very annoying to work for mm-hmm. and work with. And there's there's a big gap also in their experience on on the ground with people. So take Jennifer Moore. She's just about to retire yep. as the executive assistant director. Uh, she's been in the FBI since the mid-'90s. Uh, she came in before uh, her time. She was not an agent. She was a support staff, and then eventually became an agent. She worked FBI cases from 1999 to 2005. In a 30-year career, six of them were spent actually doing the investigative work that she is now having this managerial responsibility of overseeing. And I think that that just leads to a tremendous disconnect between the the management class and the rank and file. I want to get back to this concept of being a whistleblower, right? So the definition of whistleblower is a whistleblower, Whistleblower Protection Act of 1989, the law protects federal employees who disclose evidence of waste, fraud, or abuse, which, you know, you guys are doing. All right. Under this act, federal employees are protected from retaliation uh, when they disclose information that they are reasonably believe shows evidence of wrongdoing. All right, cool. So when I think of the concept of whistleblower in, in simple terms, it's almost like a referee. Like the referee in sports, I'm a big sports guy. Your job is not to root for one particular team. Your job is to basically call balls and strikes, blow the whistle uh, when you see a foul, and and let the game uh, be played out. So the nature of the the job of the FBI is to what? Investigate crimes, defend the homeland, um, uh, defend against national security threats, right? Not supposed to be apolitical, no ideology whatsoever, just blow the whistle, Balls and strikes, be the referee. So when you think of whistleblowers over the last decade or so, who comes to mind? Edward Snowden, he blew the whistle on the overreach after the Patriot Act and basically uh, the mass national surveillance that was going on on a global scale. Everything with Julia Assange, WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, everything happened with that. I mean, the most famous whistleblower was Deep Throat, right, with um, uh, Mark Esper with uh, uh, the Nixon, the Watergate situation. So in simple terms, I'm just kind of framing this for you guys. In simple terms, when they look back at what you guys have done, when people tell your story, uh, what are you blowing the whistle on exactly? So uh, there's been a handful of things for me. Um, one of the main ones that I that I like to talk about, we touched on a little bit, is the stat padding. Uh, so because Steve said um, in the last decade, uh, domestic terrorism stats have gone up 400%. Well, I have an example proving just that. So I had a case. It, it was technically one case, but the FBI had me open up four cases because there were four individuals involved who were all part of the same group. So if you multiply that across all field offices, you know, in my individual example, it's a 400% increase. But multiply that across, and it's like it, it shows this picture to America that there's this huge domestic terrorism problem. The January 6th example that Steve has is another example of that because then every field office is opening all these separate cases. And, it, and then the FBI can say, look, we really do have this huge domestic terrorism problem when in actuality it's not really uh, showing the, the whole truth or the real facts of what's going on. Uh, we talked about the school board threat tag. That was another one for me um, that I blew the whistle on. And then uh, another threat tag. It was uh, threats to SCOTUS 2022. That was shortly after the Hobbs decision came down, uh, reversing Roe, which mm-hmm. in that instance, the left were the ones who were uh, up in arms, you know, protesting outside of Supreme Court justices' homes, which is a federal crime, which to my knowledge, even to, to right now, no one has been charged with that. Um, but when the FBI sent out that threat tag, part of the information was 
to focus on people who have a pro-life ideology. And again, my boss was the one who brought this threat tag to my attention. And he said, you know, part of the guidance says to, to dig into pro-life people. Why would we do that? They're going to be happy about this. They're not going to be attacking anybody. And this threat tag is supposed to be about protecting Supreme Court justices, not about, you know, some, some firebombing attack on, a, on an abortion clinic, which also, if you're pro-life, you're not going to attack at that moment because you're counting that as a win. And then um, what multiplied that for me, which is why I blew the whistle on it, is then I got tasked with um, questioning a, a CHS of mine, which is what the FBI calls a confidential human source. So mm-hmm. that's in common parlance, it's a CI, a, a confidential informant. Yep. And so in that one, I was like, okay, we just got this threat tag. Now I just get this tasking to go talk to this guy. And even him, when I asked him th- these questions, he was like, why are you, why are you, is this just like a yearly check-in or what? And I'm like, well, no, I was tasked to, to ask you these. And I, I know they don't make sense because in light of the Hobbs decision, you know, you, you're, you're probably happy. Right. And so all of that combined. And then I had a January 6th one where the FBI was trying to get me to serve a federal grand jury subpoena when I had no indicia of evidence to do so. And, um, and then on top of that, during that lead that I got, I also had a facial recognition match. They claimed it was a facial recognition match. They used a driver's license photo from about 25 years prior to say, here's your facial recognition match. And that's inappropriate law enforcement activity. And even when I was pushing back on that, I still had a guy saying, you have a match. And I was like, but I don't because here's the current driver's license photo. And the guy looks way different. He has, he's bald. He's, you know, 150 pounds heavier than the match. And it's like, this is, this is wrong. There's, there's no due process here. Um, and then that, that one was also based off of an anonymous tip, which holds very little weight. Um, Navarrete versus California is a Supreme court law that gets into, um, anonymous tips in law enforcement. Um, I'm trying to think what else I can talk about because uh, I've done. There's been a number of things, and but you said padding the stats. Yep. You also mentioned that. Is that exactly what you're blowing the whistle on? Yeah, that was the, that, and then the concern for public safety, where they were going to be using the SWAT for a guy who said, "I'll cooperate." Um, so I thought put him at risk, and then and then the ensuing time since my suspension, I think we're both kind of become uh, whistleblowers, at least in the public sphere, recently for Garrett um, about how the law you're citing is not being respected or adhered to by the FBI as far as we're, we're, we're experiencing tremendous retaliation and the FBI has found a hack to circumvent that law and they use the security clearance suspension process to do that. And Steve, you were, you're, you were going after child exploitation, human trafficking, child uh, sexual abuse. They take you off of that to put you on. We got to make sure these people like get in deep, deep trouble for January 6th. That was what you were actually doing, like real work, yeah. real change, and they take you off to do. Yeah, and, and, and to elaborate on that just a, quickly, uh, I was on those cases. I, I was told that, hey, just make yourself available for these terrorist cases because there's really not a lot of work to do. Um, so for actually, on, on, I was 
told to commit essentially time card fraud, which is a felony. And I, on my time card, I was saying I am a domestic terrorist agent. Um, and I wasn't really doing anything because those cases had been already worked. They were sitting in D.C. waiting for them to tell us what to do. And in the meantime, I kept working my child porn cases to the point where I got an award about six weeks before I was suspended for my work on child porn cases, which I wasn't supposed to be doing. Wow. Guys, you, you guys both the question. All we keep hearing from the left is with Biden, all these. It's just like every day it's the same BS that the biggest threat to this nation is white supremacy and domestic terrorism. Age, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Do you guys believe in that? And if you had to pick one that obviously is not that, what would it be? The biggest threat to us as Americans. So I was a domestic terrorism agent. That was yeah. that was what I was assigned to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying it isn't a threat and that there are threats in that realm. But uh, white supremacy, I, I didn't see it. <laughs> um, domestic terrorism as the biggest threat, I didn't see it. It's just the boogeyman for today. And... Um, I put it like this, go back through the FBI's history. 1920, we had the Palmer Raids, which the FBI rounded up a bunch of communists and deported a bunch of them without due process. There was like one in 100 who got charged with anything. Fast forward to the 30s, the FBI rounds up Japanese in this country and puts them in internment camps. Fast forward a little bit more, FBI tries to get Martin Luther King Jr. to commit suicide. Fast forward a little bit more, it's uh, Weather Underground in the 80s. Fast forward to the 90s, it's uh, domestic terrorism, like Waco and Ruby Ridge and all that. 2000, Patriot Act, which, by the way, would be Hoover's wet dream. Um, (laughs) Because because he was big on... (laughs) He was big on in- intelligence, too. Patriot Act opened the floodgates for the FBI to gather intelligence on everyone. And Patriot Act su- supposedly was for uh, um, international threats. It has been not. So now we fast forward after the Muslim extremist threat yeah. is over. Now it's turned inward domestically. And so it's just the current boogeyman. His speech that he gave at that college is is absolutely ridiculous. Right. So, so if you had to pick and I want to ask you to see what what would you say? Is it still just actual outside terrorism? That's the like the number one threat to the American public. I think the number one threat to the American public is a government weaponized against its people. I, I that's I was going to say that myself. There's an article here that was written: Why the FBI and Democrats are attacking whistleblowers by Alex Gutentag and Michael Schellenberger. I don't know if you guys have read this or not. So you men you men mentioned the uh, CHSs. You know the whole. Uh, 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 what do you call them, the the confidential human sources, right? So in this article, it says, court documents indicate that there were at least eight FBI informants known as CHSs, four confidential human informants in the Proud Boys, which was one of the groups that organized the January 6th protest. There's evidence that FBI also had CHS and Oath Keepers, another January 6th uh, activist group, uh, and former FBI supervisor and intelligence analyst George Hill told the subcommittee that the Boston office asked for video footage from the 6th protest. The Washington field office said they could not give access to the 11,000 hours of video footage available because there may be UCs, undercover <laughs> officers or CHSs, which what we just talked about, confidential human sources, on those videos whose identity we need to protect and it wasn't just the FBI who had undercover informants and agents in the crowd. There were undercover agents and informants from other law enforcement agencies, including the Washington, D.C. Metro Police, who were acting like Trump supporters. Indeed, there may have been hundreds of undercover government agents and informants, both local and federal, in the crowd on January 6th. Some even said there were 100 to 200 Secret Service agents alone at the Capitol Hill before and during the breach of the police Barriers. One court filing alleges that there were at least 20 FBI assets 
at the Capitol. So when you see stuff like this, you know, and you're one that's on the other side, and we watched, you know, the last 10 years, um, eight years, 15, 16. So what, eight years since, seven years since 16. Russia collusion, Trump. Oh, man, why did you do, you know, so even the average person that's kind of sitting there saying, oh, my God, the guy I voted for is doing this. You got to be kidding me, right? Democrats obviously ran with it. You know, all these guys, oh, we have 100% evidence of what happened here. And you're like, ah, oh, that wasn't right. Oh, you guys just, a Durham report, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. Let's just move on, you know. You know, the dossier was paid for Hillary Clinton. Let's just move on to the next topic. And so, and then so Obama was, what, Obama knew all along while they were investigating Trump. Yeah, but you know what, everybody knows because he's the president. And so, yeah, Mar-a-Lago, let's go do this. Yeah, because he has these documents. So, you know, January 6th, look what he did. It's terrible. The more and more and more they try to spin this, and, and then it comes out two, three years later as being bad, the credibility keeps taking a hit to the point where now they're talking about, you know, people are running for president, talking about getting rid of the FBI because it's messing up uh, the nation and dividing us, right? How much of what Al- Alex and Michael wrote were you guys aware of where they are saying, hey, we want you guys to go there undercover and join these organizations to kind of work like, you know, what uh, uh, our friend did with the mob back in the days in the 80s. What's his name? That the movie came out, Donnie Brasco. Yeah, like undercover. Uh, Joe Pistone. Yeah. You know, like he six years he was undercover, five years and 10 months. How much of that was happening with January 6th and the Trump organization? Uh, I think a tremendous amount of that was going on. And, and let's just, we can remove the January 6th aspect to it. Let's take another case that's a little smaller in scale. Let's take the Gretchen Whitmer uh, Wolverine Watchman case, which I actually had involvement in. The um, governor of Michigan, you're saying. The, yes. where the, 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 the plot homegrown to, terrorists were going to kidnap her. That story. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And so the the demand for domestic terrorism in this country is from the political elite and the, in the, uh, the people standing at the lectern. It vastly outstrips the supply that actually exists. And the nature of the FBI that has now evolved from law enforcement to domestic intelligence collection, uh, our, our friend Kyle Serafin puts this really well. Criminal investigations are linear. Beginning, crime happens, middle, investigate, and there's a conviction. Intelligence operations are circular. You open an investigation up to get more intelligence. Where does that get you? More intelligence. Where does that get you? The ability to spin out other investigations that are more intelligence. So because there's a demand for domestic terrorism, and then there's these intelligence operations that go on. You infiltrate these groups that are deemed to be problematic, or they could be a threat. They could be a domestic terror group. So you take this this group of guys in, in Michigan who is not predisposed to, to doing this, but you infiltrate it with undercovers and informants. And the thing about informants are they know they're an informant. Nobody else does. They don't know. If, if Garrett and I have both infiltrated the Wolverine Watchmen as informants, we wouldn't know that. So then you get a situation where they're in the room and I'm like trying to be report back to my guy so I can get paid. Hey, you know, it'd be a good idea. We should we should maybe come up with a plot here to do something. And then he's got to one up me because he wants to report back to his handler and he get paid. And that's how the thing can snowball out of control. And that's why you see these situations like on January 6th or back to Whitmer, where these guys were not predisposed to engaging in Mm -hmm. something that was going to be violent or anything that could be construed as terrorism. And in fact, at one point in that case, the group was breaking down and the agents were telling their informants, hold it together, which is not in keeping with the tradition of law enforcement. If there's a if there's a a plot to rob a bank and on the way one guy's like, nah, let's 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 not. You don't arrest him for robbing the bank. Now, on January 6th, there, I, I, I'm very confident that there was infiltration from informants and undercovers on not just 
the FBI who gets painted with the brush of being federal law enforcement, everything. The Department of Homeland Security has 10x the budget of the FBI and has a nexus to terrorism and national security. So, see, we saw that guy, uh, Ray Epps, which he was all over the Internet. All, all we kept seeing is this guy who looked like a carbon cutout of, an, of a freaking agent, MAGA hat, gray uh, khakis. He was verbally on camera saying, we need to go. We need to attack the Capitol. If that's not inciting violence, apparently they, they interviewed him and then they let him go. Everybody else that was just on a bus showing up was arrested. The FBI went after them. Do you guys have any idea who that guy is, what agency he might have worked for? Because it looks, it looks pretty apparent to people like us who that type of guy is. Yeah. Did you track on his responses to the I, questions? I, 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 saw, I saw, I did see him messaging his, uh, his nephew, nephew yeah. or, or something. I, I forgot. What was he saying? He's just like, I started, I started it. it yeah. I started it. So how does the FBI not go after that guy, yet they're going after people that barely did? They were just there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's clear to anybody paying attention yeah. that the only answer is that he's working with the government to some degree because now I don't, I don't have any personal knowledge of that, but it doesn't take a suspended FBI agent to see that information and be like, Oh yeah, he's, he's got to be involved somehow because, and there's video of him like pushing gates and saying, go, go, go. Yeah. And the night before saying we're storming the Capitol and the text to his nephew, but he's not charged. Instead, he gets a puff piece on 60 minutes a few weeks back, especially when we know the media is controlled by, the government and the left, and we were, we we're finding out in the Twitter files and things that continue to come out that the media, that the CIA has involvement with our own media. So it, it seems very clear to anybody who's been paying just even a small amount of attention that he's got to be. It, it, His oh, it, answers, yeah, too, he, were, were very lawyerly. He, he, he always says, I didn't work for the FBI. Yep. He, the, the question should be, have you ever worked for the government? True. Well, and this. So... As agents, when we have a CHS, when we talk to them, we have to, and I think this actually came out of the church committee hearings in the 70s, because back then, because some of the informants back then testified publicly, and the, the way they responded was, I was working for the FBI. I was working with the FBI. We have to explicitly tell CHSs now, you can't claim that you work for or with the FBI. Like, it's not a job. We have to tell them that. So when, when someone answers, I've not worked for the FBI, he's remembering what he was told by his handlers, potentially. Yeah. Wow. For you guys, uh, take off your FBI hats for a second and just be regular good old Americans, all right? Uh, we're talking about January 6th for a second. How do you process what actually happened that day? And what do you think the FBI did right? And what do you think they definitely did wrong? What do you think? Uh, I think that uh, it was not – this wasn't a perfect puzzle piece that went all together. I think that President Trump's uh, ascendancy uh, brought a lot of people who were novice and new to the political process. He got a lot of people very excited, voting for the first time, engaged in politics. Couple that with the 2020 shutdowns where essentially politics became sports and entertainment for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was genuine belief on a lot by a lot of people that they were going there to exercise their First Amendment and – that they had the opportunity to pause this transfer of power, this certification of the election, because they just wanted Quote to unquote, stop the steal. Stop the steal. They, and I, there was questions that were never really answered after the election. There was definitely some, some questionable things that happened, and, and nobody ever got a satisfactory answer to that, and I can understand them being upset. I think that there were people there that did for, the, for that purpose. I think that there were 
some groups there like the uh, like the Proud Boys, who after 2020 watching cities burn said, I think Antifa needs to get a butt kicking. And they went there prepared to get in a fight with Antifa because they were just pent up rage at that point. And that has now been weaponized against them in these prosecutions that they were there for violent purposes. And then I think there was also a government infiltration aspect to it because they had these groups infiltrated, they had undercovers there, uh, and might not necessarily have been saying, hey, we're going to plan to start an incident that's going to allow us to investigate thousands of Americans and initiate a seditious conspiracy charge against a candidate for presidency. I, I don't think there was a master plot in a back-filled, smoke-filled room with a guy with a cat. Um, <laughs> but Yeah, you're thinking of Dr. Evil right now? <laughs> okay. So, and then to the FBI's... Uh, involvement in this what do you think they did right and what did they do wrong oh <laughs> yeah that's a hard to get one right <laughs> and it, it's kind of hard so the fbi didn't do anything right i don't i don't think that's true um because it's hard for me to remove that fbi agent hat i know because but, of how because i have now i have knowledge you know and i have mm -hmm. lots of video that i watch when we're getting those leads and so there, there were people that day who absolutely should have been arrested. There were people that day who were fighting with cops or pushing through or whatever. But then there were people who walk into the Capitol and there's no fr fracas going on. Yep. And I, I know of one case that I don't know where the guy came from or whatever. And I think he's even like a Marine veteran. He walks in and you see on video, he talks with a Capitol police officer. And according to him, the Capitol police officer told him he had to leave. And so he left. Yeah. And he got charged. That was the video I believe Tucker played. Yeah. Uh, and he got charged. Okay. Right. Why is that guy getting so charged? So you're saying yeah. it's important to delineate between who was actually doing criminal activity, fighting with cops, really doing certain stuff, versus right. a guy who just kind of was there grazing the through the Capitol. Right. Or we've gotcha. seen the pictures of the people basically in line, like they're at the Capitol for a tour. Yeah. And, and sure, misdemeanor trespass maybe at the most for a lot of those people, but... Mm -hmm. Are, is the FBI really and the DOJ really going to doing a, be, be doing a full court press on all those people? Well, they are, but why? Because and, they, and they're actually altering the way they're perceiving. And and there were conversations that I I was told about that happened where they said stop the steal is going to be a predicated uh, domestic terrorism mm -hmm. ideology. And oh, let's put a pin in this case right now. Let's go back through the code book and see if we can find anything else to charge him with. That's find me a man, I'll find you the crime. And now the uh, the whole, if you went into the four walls of the Capitol, uh, you were you were going to get this four pack of charges, one of which is an Enron case, a crime, like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But now they say they're going to uh, charge anybody that was on the lawn on the outside because the lawn is going to be in ret retroactively made a restricted area. Gotcha. Well, to use an analogy, you brought up uh, the, the COVID riots, George Floyd protests, everything like that. It'd be like going to one of the protests and just holding up a sign, you know, free speech, whatever it is, um, hands up, don't shoot, whatever it is, versus actually being one of the arsonists blowing up buildings. Right. Correct. There's a big difference there. Yeah. Correct. One is legal and within your right. And one is highly illegal. Right. Is that essentially what you're trying to delineate between yeah, January 6th? If you're walking through the Capitol peacefully, all right, cool, you're protesting, versus someone who's actively has weapons on them fighting with cops, what have you. Mm -hmm. Is that essentially your point? Yeah, it is. And especially for the people who were there but didn't go in the Capitol or just in the area, yeah. what are they getting investigated for? That, so those people are being investigated. Yes. And that's what you're blowing the whistle. That's essentially padding the stats for domestic terrorists, domestic extremists. It, it is, yeah. And yeah. and your point about 2020, 
yeah. I think is is a is a poignant example of how the FBI got January 6th wrong, because none of what we have seen with January 6th happened in 2020. And I know the naysayers would say, yeah, well, uh, because those protests didn't happen in the seat of power of this nation. I say as a as a law enforcement officer, that doesn't matter because there were people traveling to those protests in Portland and Minneapolis or wherever. So when you travel, when you're not from there, that's an interstate crime. If, if you engage in criminal activity, that makes it a federal crime. But we didn't have these massive, you know, uh, task force set up to try to get all the people who were burning down police stations. But for January 6th, it's go arrest every single person who was even on the lawn. Mm-hmm. You know, my family was on the lawn uh, the night of the day after or the night of the hearing. And we, we kind of joked about it. And it's like, oh, are, 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 is the FBI going to be coming for them just because we were here? You know, like, and I think that's a general sentiment that a lot of Americans have right now. Like, the FBI is the actual boogeyman, not this trumped up idea of domestic terrorism. And, and to go deeper on the, those riots, for example, even when, you know, um, when George Floyd was killed, uh, the whole narrative was like, listen, not all cops are bad. These are a few bad apples. The whole bad apple thing. Hey, and all these teachers aren't indoctrinating kids. There's a few bad apples. All these athletes aren't beating their wives. There's a few bad apples. This whole concept of being a bad apple. But sometimes the apple is actually rotten to the core. So you hear the the concepts that the FBI is being uh, the politization of the FBI or the weaponization of the FBI. So regarding the FBI, are there just a few bad apples and bad actors or is the FBI rotten to the core at this point? And what would you say? Uh, I'm, I'm back to the disconnect between the rank and file and the management class. And, and the fact that those guys have to go back and forth to D.C. all the time. And their priorities are within self, for, for their self-promotion and not for the, the good of the American people. They're not about the casework. I think there are people that do genuinely good work in the FBI. I think that that work can be done by other people just as effectively so if you asked me, you made me king for a day, the FBI would, wouldn't exist anymore. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a defund the police guy. Um, I, I think that you can empower local law enforcement in a way that uh, you, you, make, you deputize locals and make them, give them federal authority. And, and there's a whole thing we can get into with that. Um, but I think as far as from the leadership standpoint, from the, you can't just take out Christopher Ray and expect it all to get better. Now, Christopher Ray needs to go. And, and I'll just quick math on him. $9 million salary the year before he became the FBI director. Gave that up to become the FBI director for 10 years. So he essentially gave $90 million up to become the FBI director. Is that what the tenure is for 10 years? It's a 10-year. Because I'm wondering why Biden didn't fire him, because Trump hired him in 17. Good question. Right. So you would think what that, that if, if Trump that appointed him, yeah. 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 He's, he's acceptable. And I, I think that he sacrificed $90 million for the cause. And that's why he got... In a uh, in, into an interview, he was with an interview with Brett Baer, and he was asked very directly, "What about the FBI's negative uh, image?" And he said, "Well, we have a record number of applicants, so it's all good." And guy, it's it's a down economy, and inflation is through the roof, and you're bragging about your number of applicants for a job where people can make six figures to do. If they were a cop, they'd be getting paid a third of that. So, so I'd like to ask you guys a question. So, as far as back, well, I'm going to go back to where Pat said, 2016, from. The Hillary obstruction to uh, crossfire her to all the fake collusion. Like every couple months, every it's just FBI messing up, messing up, messing up, messing up. What is it going to take? I know it's the upper echelon of the managerial, but what is it going to take to change that? Like what what needs to happen to make that that like grasp on it like break up and be 
more like less bias because that's all we're seeing with bias with Peter Strzok with all these. It's like they're embedded in there. So right. What's it going to take? They are. They are embedded. I think at a minimum you have to clear house the whole, all of headquarters. Definitely the seventh floor. Probably all of headquarters. You have to clean it out and start from scratch. But a lot of the people, like Steve talked about earlier, who get attracted to the managerial positions in the FBI, they're that type of person who likes the DC life and the notoriety or whatever. There's this talk of the FBI getting a new headquarters building. They shouldn't get one. That part of their budget should be should be scrapped until the FBI is fixed. If they ever are allowed to have a new headquarters, it shouldn't be in DC because it's attracting too many people who care too much about the politics. I mean, look what they did with the Russia collusion. It, it, and and no, nobody is paying for it. No, no accountability at all. The no. Durham report basically said uh, Obama, Biden, the AG, FBI, CIA, everybody colluded to try to cheat the real cheating of an election right. and zero accountability. Nobody's going to see. I was telling Pat before we walked in here to all the young people out there that are want to, you know, they, they're in crime. You want to steal. You want to be corrupt. You want to don't do it. If you want to get away with it, become a Democrat, be a leftist. You could do all that shit and never go to prison. You're right. So that I mean that that's a coup. That's a bloodless coup. And I know people, oh, that's extreme. Read the Durham report. Look at the facts. The FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars as a CHS payment to if he could corroborate that dossier. And he wasn't able to do it. And the FBI still went straight ahead and opened a full investigation on then a presidential candidate and then kept it going on a, on a sitting president. They, that's is if, isn't that treason? Like, are they? That's ridiculous. The hell with the hell with the elect. That's the election right. that was really. But then know. we get accused yeah. of treason. Yeah, exactly. For, you guys are the bad guys. Yeah, that's PBD. How, how much of what they're saying, as far as like the seventh floor, is reminiscent of the book "The Barbarians, the Bureaucrats"? I mean, that's what it is, though. That's the, what the, I'm asking. The, yeah. the, the market is filled with bureaucrats and aristocrats. Uh, so you go back and you said something about 9 million, 10 years, 90 million. So why did Trump appoint him 2007, August? Exactly. So why? what, what point were you trying to make about Chris Ray? So I, I think that he – who gives up that? And, and by the way, just, just for the audience that's watching this, if you can go put uh, uh, Chris Ray, 9 million, he was with the law firm King & Spaulding, okay? He made $9.2 million working as an attorney for the law firm – King and Spalding, and then he chose to become a FBI director. So go ahead. Well, I think there's obviously esteem attached to that, and he would probably argue that it was a, a financial sacrifice on his part and for his family because he wanted to serve America. Um, but what he won't tell you is he gets to live the life of a billionaire now, flying a private jet all over the place uh, for the price of a, the lowest Southwest ticket that one of his staffers can find for him. He gets that ability. So he gets to have the esteem of being the FBI director, but if you just go to the simple dollars and cents, I, I think that that sacrifice on his part represents conviction when it comes to seeing the full weaponization of the FBI come to fruition underneath his tutelage. It's something that, well, give me the ring of power and I'll make sure that it goes for good for what I deem to be good. And, and well, he's a Republican. He was so he was uh he was appointed by a Republican president. He was uh, recommended to Donald Trump by Chris Christie because he helped Chris Christie fix the Bridgegate case. He's a fixer. And in my conversations with folks who I work, to, work with now who work at the Department of Justice, he's not an intellectual titan. He's just got a really nice, you know, nice haircut. 
and and we'll do. You don't make nine point two million just with a nice haircut. If that was the case, I got like fifty <laughs> friends. I'm telling you, they should be getting paid way more than they're making right now because they have nicer haircuts. I so, should be too. Yeah, you definitely need to be. You're, you're a billionaire. Look right there.